0: Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what I learned on the podcast today. Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, tries to explain to me who's actually in charge. Plus, Martin Reg Khan from the Toronto Star tries to tell me why it is we can't seem to get beer and wine in corner stores. What's going on with 7-Eleven? Actually, that's weird, too. And Sean O'Shea tells me what's happening with Air Canada and a bailout. Don't call it a bailout. Let's get to it. Oh, I can't stand it. I can't stand the confusion. But what I can't stand more is the chaos and the cynicism that comes from the confusion. Do not be brought down. Do not be brought low by the mixed messages and the communication failures. Unfortunately, there are those in charge of all of the pandemic response that are allowing gaps in communication. And when you allow a gap into the communication, when things do not make sense, what happens is that people get upset and they get angry and distrust grows. And it is so important that we do not amplify that. It is my job, it is my job to make sure that you get the truth. My name is Alan Carter, and for 30 years now I have been in local news in various parts of this country. For more than 20 years, I have been a news reporter in the city of Toronto working at Global News. I have been a crime reporter. I have been the Queens Park bureau chief. I have been the managing editor of the newsroom. I have anchored news programs both in the morning and in the evening. And what is the cumulative amount of my experience? What does it tell me? It tells me that we must remain focused and calm. That if we allow those on either side to be able to spin us out of control with anger and amplitude of confusion and cynicism that takes us to a place we do not want to go. Too often, we make the mistake of retreating into our own worst instincts. Coming up. We're going to talk about that from a couple of different angles. We're going to dig into what's happening with the provincial response and with the municipal response straight ahead. Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, is going to be with us. Then later on in the program, are you thirsty? Because I am thirsty. This confusion is making me thirsty. Forget about the pretzels. The pretzels aren't making me thirsty. The confusion is, so I'd like to go to the corner store and get myself a beer. Wait a minute. Didn't Doug Ford promise that, that we could do that? Coming up, I talk about my experience. I know a lot. I know a, litical, a a ludicrous amount about provincial policy and alcohol. But there's somebody who knows more about it than me, and that is Martin Redcon from the Toronto Star. And he's going to join me to talk about 7-Eleven. What's going on with 7-Eleven? And this whole thing that they're gonna start serving beer in their stores—how does that make sense? I'm confused by it. This confusion is making me thirsty. And later on, uh, Sean O'Shea, who is just the best reporter in this city, hands down. I just—I don't think there is a. There's not. A, it's not a conversation. Sean O'Shea is gonna tell us about this Air Canada thing, where or Air Canada saying, "Yeah, we'll take a bailout." Well, but contingent, you know, contingent actually getting refunds is, is getting a bailout. You know, so what, why is tax money going to be able to bail out a, an organization that ha, owes uh, consumers something and tax money is going to go to it? Does it make sense? This confusion is making me thirsty. But let's get to our top story. Up first is the mayor of Mississauga who is on the line. Bonnie Crombie, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having
0: me on. Thank you so much. 171, that's the case number today in Peel. As of yesterday, the rolling average uh, was 194. You called for your region to go into red and seemed very, very disappointed yesterday when you found out that it had to be gray.
1: Well, last week we were averaging 73 cases per 100,000, and yes, we went up by one, 74 cases per 100,000. And I have to tell you, that's the same situation York was in when they were moved into red. But the dis- disappointing number was the R factor, which is that reproductive rate. And when it's over one, it means that that virus is being transmitted to one at least one person and perhaps even more than that. We needed to get that R number down under 0.9, in fact, under 0.8, under 0.7. So that's the target for us to get the reproductive rate down. The case numbers are, are steadily declining. Yes, we're worried about the VOCs and yes, we're worrying and very closely watching the situations in our hospitals. But the hospitals seem to be holding their own, which gives me uh, great comfort. Um, And now we just have to work on driving down the reproduction number, the R factor.
0: Was it a mistake for you to call last week for your region to be moved into red?
1: No, it wasn't. Uh, not at all. Uh, certainly, we were trending downwards. And one more week of downward trending, as I had hoped, would have put us in the red zone. But unfortunately, things kind of came to a thing stalled, let's be honest, and increased a little more in uh, in Brampton. Uh, they increased from 115 cases per 100,000 to 128 uh, so that was a big jump, and their positivity rate increased to 8.7, and their reproductive factor is 1.04. So we, you know, we're being held back a little bit because we're part of a larger region
2: mm-hmm. where,
1: um, you know, the situation is a little different in in uh, the different municipalities. Uh, I felt that Mississauga was much closer to being ready to go into red zone. Our retailers, our small businesses, have really been hurting. They feel penalized, um, and uh, I think they're ready. Certainly, even in the gray zone, we'll be able to open our uh, small businesses, our small retailers. Uh, to 25% capacity, which is great news. But I'm thinking about those personal care providers. Um, Largely, those are women-operated businesses. And we know that this uh, pandemic has hit women harder than it has had hit hit men. Uh, Women are often running these small businesses and they're providing for their families. And I'm really quite concerned about them. So we don't get to open those personal care services. We don't get to open gyms or restaurants. But at least... We will open carefully, slowly with our small businesses, our retail, uh, to 25% capacity.
0: Bonnie Crombie is the mayor of Mississauga. The reason I ask about uh, your call for uh, to go into red last week is that that raised a lot of eyebrows. And uh, this weekend on Focus Ontario, which is a, a television program that I host here on Global News, I, I spoke with the mayor of North Bay. And as of course you know, the North Bay is also another region that is at stay at home uh, order currently. And I asked him specifically, about what you had said in that press conference. And here's what he said. You you wouldn't do what Bonnie Crombie is doing and and urge the province to move you directly to red?
3: No, not at all. I I don't believe we should enter politics into health care. And our medical officer of health has done a great job. And because we're the lowest, we've been making all the right calls. Uh, I, I don't really believe politics should be in that side of the decision making when it comes to keeping our citizens safe.
0: That is the mayor of North Bay, Al McDonald, speaking on Focus Ontario. On the line is Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga. Your reaction to that?
1: So certainly uh, my call last week had nothing to do with politics. I closely monitor the indices. I watch our hospital capacity very closely. I look at our case counts. I look at our positivity rates and I look at the R factor as well and I thought we were trending downwards and just about ready to go and one more week of good results and we would have been ready to go. Um, But we're watching our VOCs, those variants of concern, very closely as is he and obviously uh, up there they, they They're in lockdown because of the VOCs, but no region has been in lockdown longer than Mississauga, Brampton, Caledon and the city of Toronto. We're in 15 weeks of lockdown now. I don't know. I think it's unprecedented. I don't know what other regions in the country have been in lockdown Almost four months. And I think it's uh, our small businesses are hemorrhaging. Uh, The weather is getting nicer. People are going to get outside. I think it's time. I think it's time that we start the safe reopening. The indices are almost perfect just another week. I'm hoping this little increase in the R factor was an anomaly and uh, it'll sort itself out next week. And we've asked Dr. Lowe to follow the indices very closely and let's monitor on a week to week basis. He, He said, look, the kids went back to school on February 22nd. It's too early to go back. Let's uh, wait to see the trends after seven to 14 days. What do transmission rates look like? They were stabilizing. In fact, they were declining. Things looked so good, uh, and I'm hopeful that this is just a blip. If it's an anomaly, maybe we can reopen the following week.
0: I, I think the, what for the average person, for the, the citizen out there, what, what, what they come away with is, some kind of confusion, a little bit about okay, well now who is in charge and who should be in charge? Should it be a political leadership? Uh, should it be Dr. Lowe? Should it be Dr. Devilla? In Toronto, we have sort of these you know different messages going back and forth, and I wonder if you can address the confusion and what that does for the public.
1: I'm certainly happy to do that because you know the safety health and well-being of my community are foremost but I think there are some other factors that can't be ignored as well I'm talking about mental health of people who have been in lockdown for almost 4 months I'm talking about the financial viability of our small businesses and the strain that that has imposed and how these businesses are hemorrhaging you know these are factors that have to be considered as well of course we take the advice of public health we we always do. But when you have a municipality, a city, which is the third largest in Ontario, like Mississauga, that is on the cusp and could go either way and we are airing quite frankly, on being cautious. I agree with him. I said I would support his decision. But I also want him to consider all factors, not just the case counts, not just the indices, not just our hospital conditions and the R factors. But let's look at people's mental health at this point. Let's look at the financial circumstances as well. Is that
0: being done, though? I mean, all those things that you just point out, I I think everyone agrees with you. But the question is, you know, do we do we see political leadership saying no I, we take the the health uh, advice into account but we have all these other things we're going to make a decision that's slightly different than the recommendation of the health officials
1: well we're on the cusp of both the gray and the red zone so I understand Dr. Lowe wants to be cautious, and I agree with him. We're going to wait another minimum of a week, possibly two. I hope not. Uh, and we would heed his advice. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm not disappointed that I hadn't been hoping that we would enter the red zone, just like everyone else in Mississauga. We were very hopeful that we'd been
0: Apologies there. We seem to have lost the mayor. Um, uh, thank you to, uh, Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga for calling in and an important discussion. And I think we're trying to get at what is just absolutely central. Isn't the the question you have? Like who's in charge? Davila? Tory, Williams? Ford?
1: Cut me
0: phone. I'm sorry. Uh, Bonnie Somebody Crombie, I guess know. you're still with us. Here I am. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> there you are, and I, I guess I just I just wrap up with, with the final question, which is sure. who is in charge and who should be in charge of making these decisions.
1: Uh, Certainly the medical officers of health are in charge, but I think it's time to look at all factors. Mississauga is a city on the cusp. We could be in the gray zone. We could be in the red zone. So we are taking uh, the advice of the medical officer of health who is being very cautious. And we agree because we want to reopen when it's safe. But when you look at Mississauga, borders on Oakville. At the intersection of Dundas Street and Winston Churchill, my retailers and my restaurants are looking at the south side of the street, which is open, looking at their customers going into restaurants and going into stores on the south side of Dundas Street and wondering how fair and how equitable is that when we're on the cusp of reopening, they have to be closed while directly across the street is open for business.
0: I agree. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Nor does it make sense that you can go to the Costco or the Walmart and get a scented candle, but I can't go to the Chachka shop down the street, where That's it's right. a you know Perfect. private business.
1: And right, and there's those are our friends and our family, our our neighbors who are mm-hmm. running those businesses, and we know how cautious they are. They want to protect the health and well being of their neighbors as well. Yet. Uh, those big box stores are, are open for business, over capacity, not enforcing masks. They're selling non-essential goods, which is fundamentally unfair. Uh, I, I, You know I tried to put a motion forward that we close those non-essential aisles because it set up a huge competitive advantage for those big box stores. So unfair to our local retailers.
0: Bonnie Crombie, i got to let you go. Thank you so much for being on the program today.
1: Thanks so much for having me today. All the best. The-
0: Thank you. That is Bonnie Crombie, who is the mayor of Mississauga. So I I think there was a big, important question you just heard there at the end. Like, what is, why are the big box stores open? And a lot of people have asked questions about, where's Doug Ford in all of this? Why is Doug Ford, you know, tipping the scales on the behalf of the big guys? I am thirsty. I am thirsty for the truth. That is the truth, Ruth. I need to slake my thirst With the actual real deal about what is going on. By the way, what is one of my favorite stories right now? It continues to be top of the charts. When you look at what people are clicking on, on globalnews.ca, any guess what it might be? I tell you, it involves a cat who sometimes wears a hat. And when we uh, come back later in the program, we're going to get your take on the Dr. Seuss stories. Absolutely, just piled on yesterday because uh, apparently I say Doctor Zeus like it's like a Greek god, and not a Greek god. It's a Seuss. So I'm working on it. All right, all right. 7-Eleven has applied. You know what 7-Eleven is? Of course, it has applied to the province of Ontario, to the Alcohol and Gaming Commission, to serve beer and wine inside its stores, which raised a lot of eyebrows. What is going on with that? And then when asked about it, Doug Ford, the premier, said, well, it's you know, fantastic organization. Met with them when I was down in the United States and hope they come here and expand here uh, and we'll see. Well, what's going on? In the Toronto Star today, I read this. 7-Eleven is playing the people of this province in their premier for suckers. Now that is a spicy chili dog. Martin Redcon, he is the Toronto Star Queens Park bureau bureau. Uh, I almost called you the bureau chief Martin, gave you a promotion, you're the columnist there. Welcome back to the program. Hi Alan, how are you? I'm good. Why is 7-Eleven playing us for suckers?
3: Well, you know, this whole beer in corner stores pitch or play has been played out by one politician after another. Going back to before you when before you were born in the 1980s when David Peterson, a very fine premier in his day, promised that he would bring beer to corner stores and he didn't. (laughs) And then Mike Harris promised to bring beer into corner stores and he didn't. They just go on and on. And Kathleen Wynne brought beer into supermarkets. Okay, fine. Until 2025, that's the deal. And Doug Ford said, not good enough. We're gonna bring beer into corner stores. And the subtext is always mom and pop corner stores, deserve to have a level playing field. Well, 7-Eleven is a multinational conglomerate, nothing against your friends in multinational conglomerates, Alan. 71,000 stores, 71,000 stores across the globe. Mom and pop, come on. So when you say that they are, or when they say, hey, let us serve uh, beer and wine in our 61 stores in Ontario, and not because, the government has allowed beer in corner stores yet because by the way, Doug Ford having campaigned on it has not yet delivered on that promise. And that's a good thing by the way, because I think he realizes it was not a brilliant promise, well, but no, it's going to cost gets, a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of
0: 7- money because there's a deal well, in place and we'll get, maybe get into that, but there's actually a deal that says he
3: can't without paying a lot of money. Yeah. So there's a lot of compensation, but Seven Eleven is trying to do something sneaky. They're trying to come in through the back door by saying, Hey, We're not actually convenience stores. Okay, we pretend to be mom and pop. We are going to reinvent ourselves as pretend restaurants. All those nice warmed over microwave pizzas with the little red light that keeps them warm and hot dogs. You can make us into a little designated serving area in our 7-Eleven and we can serve beer and wine. But guess what? All the other convenience stores in Ontario won't be able to. So that's why they're playing us for suckers because they're pretending to be What they're not really, which is restaurants that should be able to serve booze in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of COVID-19, when everyone's hurting and especially convenience stores are hurting. So it's an end run. That's why they're playing us for suckers.
0: One of the things that just jumped right out at me is when I heard Doug Ford say, oh, we met with him when we were down in the States. Did that show up on a lobbyist list somewhere? Shouldn't there be? uh, Is is that not lobbying on the part of of this corporation? And the other thing that jumped out at me is the timing of this application, you know, in the lead up to the budget, which would be where we would see any kind of change like that. I'm wondering what you thought about those two things.
3: Well, I'm not a huge conspiracy theory kind of guy, so I I don't – no, I'm not. I, I, so I'm, I'm kind of – like, I'm always wrong. So do I think there was some kind of super sneaky um, process where Doug Ford snuck in? It wasn't on his itinerary. He saw them last year. I think he's allowed to meet all these corporate titans, and that's okay. He, you know, his he campaigned on Ontario Open for Business, so that's fine. I I don't mind that. I I know know there's no, there aren't any real tracks about who's who's lobbying whom. And that's, you know, it would be nice if that was a little more transparent and if he had fessed up. But that's, to me, that's a bit of a sideshow. To me, it's already before the Alcohol and Gaming Commission. And I think this should be dispatched Um, and it should be, it should be, it should be stopped cold in his tracks. Because it's not fair to the other convenience stores. And it's not fair to the taxpayers of Ontario. I mean, how, how, would, how do your listeners feel about the idea of having to cough up potential penalties if we get sued by the big brewers, understandably, for breaking a deal that was negotiated in good faith that lasts until 25? Can we not wait just a few more years until that agreement? <laughs> i Thursday thirsty, Martin. Just go to I'm your market. Yeah, <laughs> I'm all ears.
0: Martin Redcon is uh, the uh, Queen's Park columnist at the uh, Toronto Star. Uh, in, in our last segment we talked about big box stores with uh, Bonnie Crombie, who's quite angry about the yeah. fact that big box stores are allowed to sell stuff. And, and is there a relation here can we, can we link these two things that you know as you talk about well, this is not mom and pop stores again, this is a big corporation making an application here and doug ford has already said well big box stores you can continue to sell stuff when mom and pop stores can't
3: yeah i'm on on that one i'm a little bit on the fence Alan, because i you know it's complicated and and there's always going to be rough justice and it's never going to be a level playing field in the middle of a a semi-lockdown so I, i know there are all kinds of inequities And you can spend a lot of time chasing your tail over those inequities have some, you know, remember when the Bay tried to make itself into a food emporium because they had, they sell some chocolates, uh, those fancy chocolates. Yeah. And so, and so they tried to make them reinvent themselves into a, uh, into the Harrods of Toronto and Rosie de our columnist just had a lot of fun walking through the Bay and so on and so forth. So that was egregious. That was crazy. Do I do I do I lose sleep about Walmart and Costco doing this and getting you know, the thing about a big box, Alan, is other than the crazy Costco crowds, there's there's a little more room to shop. So maybe it's a little safer. I don't know. I'm not I'm not a great one on that one.
0: Martin, great having you on the program. Your article is excellence in the paper today, uh, both uh, online and the physical copy, which shows up at my door in the morning. I love reading an actual hard copy of a newspaper. Martin, always great to talk to you.
3: Bless you, Alan. Take care.
0: <laughs> this is Martin Redcon with the uh, Toronto Star. Interesting stuff there. Interesting. Did you know that? Did you know that? That that's the reason why we can't get beer and wine in corner stores, that there is a deal there there is a deal that the previous liberal government signed with the big brewers and why did they do that is so that they could get beer and wine into grocery stores and that that deal is in place for a couple more years and that is why you're not going to see any beer and wine in the corner stores despite whatever Doug Ford has got to say Big it up, big it up. It's time for some refunds. Does Air Canada owe you a couple of dollars? Did you book something and it's just being pushed forward and forward and forward and you're like, I need that cash. I need the money. Well, Air Canada says, Well, I don't have any money. We don't have any money around there. We need we need the federal government to do it. And Ottawa has put the reimbursement of travelers on the table as a key demand in exchange for financial relief. For airlines, Sean O'Shea is our global news reporter covering this story for us. Welcome to the program, Sean.
2: Hello again, Alan.
0: Welcome. I you, You've been covering this. I, I can't count how many times you've been out to the airport talking about uh, <laughs> airport and airline uh, related things. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who really use this money back.
2: This was such a contentious issue back last year, Alan, when people couldn't fly and had paid in full for tickets. And then various airlines, including Air Canada and WestJet, said, look, we're going to give you a flight credit toward a future flight as opposed to giving money back. It really angered so many people who said, hey, that's my money. I didn't get the service. It's not my fault that there was a pandemic that you couldn't fly me. I should get the money back. And so this is now apparently going to happen, according to Jerry Dias, who heads the largest private sector union in Canada, represents 15,000 airline employees, and he's saying uh, the federal government is not confirming, nor is Air Canada, but he's saying that uh, this was a stipulation of the financial package that is being worked out and has been under negotiation between the federal government and Air Canada and WestJet since uh, last November. Again, he's saying it, and uh, the federal government is not confirming it, but they're not denying it either.
0: Uh, Jerry Diaz was uh, on this radio station earlier today talking about the financial impact on Air Canada.
2: Air
3: Canada is losing 14 to $16 million a day. If you can imagine, here's a quick time, goes. March 16th is one year. Since the first flight restrictions were imposed, uh, the 14-day quarantines, all cancellation of non-essential travel one year. But I do know that we are at a critical time. The industry is in deep trouble, and we can't have a strong economy if we don't have a vital airline industry.
0: That is Jerry Diaz on this radio station earlier today. It is his reporting that uh, Air Canada has on the table right now uh, refunds for passengers as part of Of a bailout package, Sean O'Shea, our global news reporter on the line, Sean, I think the question for a lot of people is, is wait a second, is government, is the government going to take tax money, kind of a tax base, and then funnel it into this corporation, which then is going to hand it on uh, to travelers who want their money back? And does that make sense?
2: Valid questions, Alan. Uh, Dias, with us, was very clear to say that this is not going to be a bailout. It's going to be a government loan at low interest rates. That's what's being negotiated. But however you look at it, people who are owed money, and it could be a few hundred dollars. In some cases, it could be several thousand dollars. They do want their money back. I talked to Gabor Lukács, who runs Air Passenger Rights out in Halifax. So He's been an advocate for many years for passengers who have various issues with airlines, including the non-repayment. And he said, look, this is a short-term gain, but really it's a long-term loss from a perspective of rule of law because, as he pointed out, uh, airlines are supposed to give money back when the flights don't go, and it's their fault. So to make it sort of a bargaining issue in terms of getting money back uh, by way of uh, government uh, handout or loan or package or whatever you want to call it, he says that's wrong but I think consumers uh, do want to get their money back. Many have, I I must say, and and I'm one of those people. I'll I'll acknowledge this. My wife and I were supposed to go to Berlin last year, and initially the airline that I was traveling with said, uh, no, you're gonna have to take a, uh, a credit. And so I contacted my credit card company, as did many other people, and as a result of making that chargeback request, I got my money back, and so did a lot of other people, and people who paid with credit cards pursued that. But it hasn't been easy for a lot of people. And, in fact, even in my case, air, the airline uh, basically challenged it uh, and then ended up, uh, uh, the, the the credit card company ended up paying back. So there's a whole range of people, some owed money, some that got money back. But it is so angering for so many people who really, in many cases, needed every dollar they could get last March.
0: Speaking with Sean O'Shea, our consumer reporter here at Global News. And, Sean, as we peer into the financials of Air Canada, uh, what sense do we have i mean the the just the the hemorrhaging of money just seems to be just
2: overwhelming well they declared a you know 1.16 billion dollar loss in the fourth quarter last year and as dias pointed out uh, on your show or on 640 as well you know the airlines losing 14 to 16 million dollars a day i mean that's obviously not sustainable but people aren't traveling but that's not going to last forever right as soon as uh, people can fly again. People are going to fly. One of the other conditions we understand, uh, in addition to refunding the money that is owed to consumers who couldn't fly, is reinstating many of these routes um, that, that were cut by, mm. uh, by Air Canada. So that those would be many of the less popular routes or less profitable ones. So there's a whole series of issues that are in this negotiation. And as David Aiken, our uh, reporter in Ottawa, uh, told us today, the government has not committed to when these negotiations will be done. So as I said, you know, Dias has come out first to say that this is going to happen, but we just don't know when.
0: Uh, in your story tonight uh, on Global News, uh, what are we expecting to see, Sean?
2: We'll tell the story, and we'll also talk to some passengers who contacted us uh, over the last year in frustration because they couldn't get their money back. And many people are hoping now that that's going to actually have a a final end date.
0: Let's hope so. Sean O'Shea, Consumer Reporter for Global News. Always great to have you on the program. Thanks again, Sean. Thanks, Alan. Well, I think there's uh, so many questions that come out of that. And here's the, the one thing that continues to really dominate my thinking about where the money is going from the government. Where is the money going? We know that aid is required. We know that people need supports. But what happens when the government funnels money and quote unquote, whether it's a bailout or not, or you depending on your perspective through these corporations, I mean, does the money end up in the C-suite does it end up in the hands of the shareholder class or does it actually end up in the hands of the workers, in the hands of the people who are going to need it? Because the bottom line of what's happened over the last year with this pandemic is we have just taken a ton of money, a just an absolute ton of debt, public debt, and just handed it to the wealthiest people in the country. Here you go. Here you are, you get richer, and everybody else gets poorer. And there's going to be a reckoning for that kind of thing. You can't have that kind of wage disparity, that kind of thing where money is going to the shareholder class. Do you know what's driving the real estate market right now? What's driving it is all of the accumulated wealth for a lot of people who are getting government subsidies or either just sitting on cash at home. they've got nowhere to spend it, you got nothing to, nowhere to spend it. You're already okay, you got the room, you got the spot. You know, if you're of a certain income level already, the pandemic probably has padded your bottom line a little bit, hasn't it? Fess up. But if you're below a certain income level, the impact has been catastrophic. And time and time again, what do we see the government doing? We see the government putting money in the hands of corporations and getting cash where? To the shareholder class, the landowning class. And meanwhile, paid sick days are like, well, it's the federal responsibility. No, it's the provincial responsibility. And on we go, a year into this thing, no paid sick days, no added supports. And we know the transmission is happening amongst workers who have to go to work, don't have any choice. We know the transmission then happens with those workers who work in, you know, in factories and other settings and then go home and they live closely. They may be multi-generational families, no ability to separate or to isolate if needed. But by all means, Let's shovel some cash to another giant corporation. Let's do that. Doesn't seem to make any sense. My name is Alan Carter, and here's how I sum it all up. Because we've talked about a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense. Whether it's Dr. Seuss, whether it's beer and wine in corner stores, whether it's whether or not politicians or health officials are actually in charge of the health response. All of those things we discussed today. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Radio Program is live weekdays at noon.